I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, oh, it's a cracker. I sit down with uh, musician, uh, producer, Elliot Kennedy, who is literally the songwriter to the stars. Um, Elliot has uh, worked with artists such as the Spice Girls, Mary J. Blige, Donny Osmond, Brian Adams, Lulu, Gary Barlow, just so many. The, the list goes on and we touch on it and, and, and we go... We go right in on his journey, and it's it's fascinating. And uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, before we get on with the show, just a few thank yous. So um, big thanks to Scroobius Pip uh, and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Uh, thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. You know, it's uh, it's not the easiest thing to do uh, at the moment in lockdown. Uh, he's, he's produced, you know, audio. You know, I, I guess most podcasts now are being done remotely. So, you know, you're, you're banking on there being a, a good Wi-Fi connection and... Uh, and, and hopefully the guest has got a, a mic of sorts plugged in and, and, and you're in well, you're in luck today. Uh, you know, Elliot uh, had a lovely setup. We recorded it from his home studio um, as well. So so thanks to 76 for for really, uh, you know, just, just working on all of this kind of remote style audio to ensure that you get a nice listening experience. Um, also, if this is your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track, uh, when you finish listening to my chat with Elliot, then go and have a look in the in the back catalogue because there's 250 or so episodes now and you can listen to them all for free and you can hear me chatting to artists as diverse as Melanie C, Fatboy Slim, uh, Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, um, Chuck D of Public Enemy, you know, actors such as Maxine Peake, Amanda Abington, Joe Hartley, comedians like James Acaster, Ed Gamble. There's there's stacks. There's like I say, there's two hundred and fifty odd episodes, and go and have a, a rummage and uh, and see which ones you like and uh, and have a listen. Or better still, subscribe. And if you see us on the socials. Give us a like, love, share. We're on all the, the usual places, so um, give us a follow. It does uh, it does all help. Um, and what really helps as well is um, is supporting the podcast on my Patreon. Um, this Obviously, this podcast is for free, uh, and so there is also a, a platform where you can support the podcast. And uh, um, you also get, you know, a few 
bonus uh, episodes each week over there. So um, you can sign up to, to the Patreon at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash off the beaten track. Uh, and if you go over there, like I say, there's another couple of hundred episodes in the back catalogue you can get access to. And I think it's about 71p a week it costs. And like I say, each week you get a video episode, you get some radio shows, and yeah, loads of bits and pieces. Um, right, that's it. I mean, you can find out about everything I've just spoken about at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. But I know why you're here, and it's not for me, you know, flogging me wares. It's, uh, it's to listen to this glorious conversation, and, uh, and it really is. So please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Elliot Kennedy. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording. Joining me today via the means of Zoom, Elliot Kennedy. Hello. Hey mate, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. And uh, for the for the purpose of um, the listeners, we should point out that we're recording this uh, on the eighth of Feb, uh, 2021. Still in the the, the 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 throes of lockdown and and lots of snow as well today. Lots of snow right now, exactly. Yeah, mate. Well, you know what? We we haven't had that many things to sort of that uh, on a day to day basis that make you sort of go, oh look at that. That's interesting. <laughs> You know what I mean? And then, so snow does the job a little bit, doesn't it? So how have you found, um, you know, the last sort of 10, 11 months um, as, as, as both, you know, a human being and, and as a creative? Do you know what? I have to be careful with this answer because so many people have had such a terrible time um, and suffered so much as a result. But, but the majority of them, uh, uh, thankfully, um, have not and, and have been able to stay home and stay safe and not, you know, play a part in it all. Um, so in that instance, because I work from home anyway, I mean, I'm talking to you now on my home rig, if you like. Yeah. Uh, it's been an unbelievably creative time because, you know, literally we're here sitting, I come downstairs and I get me coffee and, and I'm at work straight away. So um, I started the process of the lockdown by making an album that was a bit of a sort of cathartic exercise, if I'm honest, it, it, you know, to combat my own uh, anxiety or whatever. So, and, and, and that is called Mind Music. Um, I released it because I sent it to a few friends who were having trouble sleeping and they just, they all said it really helped them. It really helped them calm down. And it's basically, I, I came down and sat here at the keyboard and sort of see where my hands fell on the piano and sort of went from there and arranged these pieces. So they're very melodic, but also very atmospheric and sort of the idea is to take you off somewhere, you know, and away from your thoughts, if you like. Um, it turned into an album, so I just released it. And, and it's been it's it's been lovely, actually. I've had some really wonderful feedback from people. So it started there in that process. And then just before lockdown, um, uh, uh, you know, a year before lockdown, I had my 50th birthday and invited a load of artists from my career to come and perform the hits I'd written with them. And... Um, and it was an amazing gig. We, we 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 sold tickets for a charity and ended up raising a hundred grand, which wow. was beautiful. And then you know, lots of artists turned up. Heather Small, Alfie Bow, S Club, and of course the Take That Boys, because Gary's my closest mate. So um, they, my first number one was with Take That, which is Everything Changes. So it was literally twenty five years after that I'd become a number one. To the day, it, you know, I, I had a crazy ambition to have a number one by the time I was twenty five, and Everything Changes went to number one on my twenty fifth birthday. Oh, that's so a good day. 
Yeah, amazing. So, mate, so literally 25 years later to the day, uh, they came and we did everything changing with guys, and I did some stuff with Mark because I wrote um, Four Minute Warning with Mark. It was a beautiful night, an amazing, uh, humbling experience for me. Afterwards, Gary called me and he said, El, you need to make an album. And I just thought he was nuts. I said, why? Why Why would I do that? He said, El, you dragged me out to these charity gigs, which I do, poor old lad. You know, I pull him out to every charity gig I've got going. And uh, and, and uh, he says, El, you do these gigs, you sell them out. People know who you are. It's not like you're new to anyone. All our fans know who you are, people who you've written for. He says, you need to make an album for them. It's, it's, uh, it's only the decent thing to do. I just, I, I ignored him because I just thought he was an idiot. So I forgot about it. And then about three weeks later, I went to see the boys on tour, and they happened to start their show in Sheffield. So I went to see the gig, and um, and he re- he'd arranged for me to meet, to meet an agent. And I, I looked at him, I said, what is up with you? <laughs> and he says, "Well, I'm not letting it go, mate. You've got to make an album. I didn't think anything about it. And then, of course, this happened. This This thing happened to the world. And he called me, he went, oh, what else are you doing, lad? Come on. If you're not going to do it now, when would you do it? So I thought, you know, there's something in that. You know, I might, it might, you know, what excuse do, do I have? You know, I'm working on projects, you know, like a new musical and things like that, but I'm pretty sure I could squeeze this in. So I sat down and I started thinking, well, if I was going to make an album, what would it be? And, of course, I had to go back to what I've taught young artists all my career, and that is that artists make an album for themselves first. It doesn't matter what's on the radio or what people you think people want to hear. It's got to be something about you. It's got to be an honest statement about who you are because that's what people buy into. That's what makes an artist what they are. And you're meant to appeal to only a small amount of people because that's how these things start, you know. So I thought about that, and I thought, well, it would be something that I loved listening to and grew up with and all the rest of it. And that, that the music that made the biggest impact on me was when I was in the late 70s. I grew up in Australia. My parents emigrated when I, when I was four. So that period of music is sort of yacht rock, yacht rock pop yeah. sort of music. Paul and Oates, Steely Dan, Doobie Brothers, you know, all that kind of thing. Michael McDonald, of course, it went on to be. Um, so I thought, well, that, that's who, that's sort of the foundation of me. So I just started writing songs in that style, egged on by young gun silver fox who i've become friends with you know the, the, the who are basically yacht yacht rock guys now you know and unbelievably talented so i became friends with them and sent them some ideas and said what do you and they just you know they were so supportive gaz was so supportive brian adams was so supportive because again he's a mate so i would send these songs thinking is this ridiculous? You know, is it embarrassing? Would I, you know, why would I do this? And I got such lovely feedback. It was like, L, you're a singer. Just get it out there. So I just did it. I decided, all right, let's, let's go ahead. Put a little promo team together for online. And obviously I've been in the business long enough. I know how to do that. And just, I've literally done that. Thankfully, we got some Radio 2 support and various other radio, and here we are talking about my album and, and music. It, I'm still doing it, which is weird. To, well, to, you know, well, I want to talk about... The, I mean, songwriting's going to feature quite heavily, I imagine, uh, throughout the, this, this chat. Um, but there's a question that I, I generally sort of follow track one with, which I'm really keen to, to ask you. So for track one, I'm going to ask you... Um, Elliot, what the song uh, you regard as having the greatest ever intro is? Ah, uh, it's easy. She sells Sanctuary by the Cult. Do you know what? Why has no one ever chose that? How good is that? 
It's unbelievable. It, it's atmospheric. It starts with that, that fantastic guitar part and and the, the you know the noise the, the sort of you know whatever it is that guitar amp thing going on, and then that snare drum comes from nowhere and bang you're into this banger of a of a rock pop song. The acoustic guitar that changs in. I don't know how they got that. Mi- I don't know how they mix that record because it's rocking. The drums are so loud. But then that ka-ching, ching acoustic guitar just sort of rings out of nowhere. But that intro, the, 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 there's actually the 12 inches, an extended version yeah. of it. And that, it's just, I, 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 I play that and I can't help but get excited. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's the, it's the coolest intro ever. Do, do you know what? Like, I think that, that song, I reference that a lot. I, I run a, um, a sort of live venue. It's, it's fundamentally like an, an alternative nightclub. Uh, right. and, and I've been there close to 30 years. And I reckon there's never been a weekend where I've DJed there where that record hasn't been played, right? Amazing. I, I mean, when when did that come out? 86? Something like 85, 86? Yeah. There's certain records that that sound, you know, that date due to production, you know, techniques and drum sounds and things like that. That record... Like, if I had to sort of ever pluck records, I always pluck that and How Soon Is Now by the Smiths. And I think... Uh, see, that would be the next one I would choose. Yeah. Unbelievable. Both Unbel- of them sonically sound so different from the rest of their their catalogue as well. The Cult never made a record anywhere near sounding like that. That's right, that's and the, right. And the same with the Smiths. And it's just, there's certain records, and there too, that I always cherry-pick and go, that record could come out tomorrow, and it wouldn't sound old. It sounds like fresh. If this record came out tomorrow, it would be like, what a great-sounding record. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. They were my two choices. <laughs> that's oh, amazing. Well, I mean, let's, let's not overlook sort of Ian Astonbury's vocal as well, which is phenomenal on that record as well. Yeah. Brilliant. That actually everything about that record, the chorus is amazing, that guitar riff, his voice is emotional and yet at the same time a little bit sort of tense and you know keeps the sort of pressure up all the way through it. That the the the, the outro of the song is brilliant when it goes out on that guitar solo. Fantastic record, period. Amazing oh, sound. Great shout. And I'll tell you what, this is well, I'm nearly two hundred and fifty episodes into this podcast and I can't believe you're the first person to check that. <laughs> That's such a tune, it really is. Um So in regards to intros, I mean you, you you've chose um you know, t- you know, that and and, and obviously your your honourable mention would have been the Smiths, which are I guess fundamentally pop records in their you yeah. know, in their essence. But I guess you know, you, you came to, you know, the, in, into the public domain, you know, essentially, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, as, as a pop writer. A pop tart. Total <laughs> pop tart. Right, wonderful. Um, and so what I want to ask you is when you would have been writing stuff like Everything Changes and things like that, the way that people listen to music is very, very different to how they listen to music now. So we're talking back then was probably Italian, the vinyl, definitely CDs, cassettes. Yeah. Um, and now, obviously, we live in a world of streaming services where, for my take on it, the younger people have slightly short retention spans, oh. you know, because they're Snapchat and TikTok, swipe, 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 next, 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 you know. And I just wonder how that has impacted on you as a writer. Has, has the way that people you know, ingest their music now affected your writing process? Well, it, it certainly has from a point of view of doing pop records, which I'm sort of less and less interested in doing. 
I think a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it comes down to how we used to acquire music. And, and, and I think that a lot of that, obviously the radio, Top of the Pops and all of that stuff, that, you know, the, the tube, you know, on a Friday night was the big thing for me throughout through the 80s. And I think that um, when it came to acquiring, buying music, other than taping it off the charts or whatever, um, was more an emotional decision than a financial one because I didn't have any finance. You know, I, my, I came from nothing. My mum and dad didn't have spare money for making records. So I had to go and work and get paper rounds and whatever else, you know. And there was a, there was a free paper on a Friday that I had to do, which was a horror of a job because it was a free paper. So I had, there was thousands of them and it took me like six hours to do it. But I got about 30 quid for doing it. So I would do it all on a Friday night till like 10 o'clock at night. So that on Saturday I could go to our price or Bradley's in Sheffield, you know, or wherever Woolworths and, and buy an album, which meant that I could basically afford by that point, by the time I was like 15 or 14, 15, an album a week, which was unbelievable. And the most I could get was a single at that point. But even still, even then, you know, it was still a emotional decision because you'd go in and go, I can buy one album. What's it going to be? I, I want to buy Travelogue by the Human League. Or I want to buy, you know, that by, um, you know, what, I remember the, the, the big choice at the, the one time was either the first album by a flock of seagulls because it had Iran on it. Yeah. Um, and oh, wishing, oh, wishing, what a pop record that is. Which was an amazing, a huge successful record. Um, the, so it was always an emotional call. Do you know what I mean? I remember, I remember the toss up between buying the album with, um, Fascination on by the Human League and Temptation by Heaven Seventeen. Oh. Both, real big, both at the same week. Though, yeah. right? I remember oh, thinking, that would have been a proper Sheffield turf war, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> real problem. So, so, but you bought those albums. You you carried them home like a badge of honour, you know, on the bus and whatnot. You go and ran home, just blew over the vinyl, put it on, sat and read the credits. That was it. You were done for a couple of hours that that day, and. So, so so much of it is nostalgia and emotion that 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 way you acquired music. So of course now the soundtrack of our lives as a result is hugely emotional journey because it's not about just playing the first minute of it. It's the whole experience, you know. So um, I think that that what it comes down to is that is that that one what I've learned and what I've noticed is that the transition from vinyl to CD. What did we do? We just went and bought all our albums again on CD, right? The, the, when iTunes came out, and you could have it on your iPod. All you, all, what did you do? You go and buy them again on on MP3. And then with with Spotify, if you look at the statistics, it shows that what people do is go back and listen to all of their favorite records in that format. And that's because we like to celebrate the soundtrack of our life over and over and over again. Whenever there's a new format, a new way to experience music. The first thing we do is go. So it's not about the way we, you know, acquire new music again, but because the windows are closed, there's no top of the pops. You know, radio is a little bit different. It all comes down to algorithms and playlists. You know, and and thankfully that wonderful algorithm on uh, Spotify. If I choose a bunch of songs, it carries on playing stuff that I might not have heard, or you know the the. The radio thing, you know, you choose an area and it's introduced me to so much brilliant new music that I wouldn't have probably gone to. So it's all about the, t- the technology. Those te- those playlists will continue to grow and to continue to introduce you to music. 
But but for me, it's always about recelebrating the soundtrack of your life, you know, and, and enjoying it and wanting people to share in it. I guess that like we've just been doing with She Sells Sanctuary and How Soon Is Now. Yeah. Those, those, those things that have an emotional response. Yeah. The bits that we want to impart, aren't they? They're the bits of, of our wisdom we want to share, you know. Well, that's, that's a perfect intro to, to track two. Um, because- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Because for that, I want to know the first record you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. I, 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 know, I know this immediately. It's Hall and Oak, she's gone. Yeah. It was late seventies. I mean, in Australia, it was. Uh, I, I, I was probably uh, probably uh, like seventy eight, seventy nine before I remember. You know, and and it was that I was young enough. Enough. I was probably seventy eight. I would have been seven, eight years old. Um, maybe like eight or nine. So, I was really into music. You know, I bought my first album in seventy eight, which I, which is going to be odd at one when I come to tell you about it. Um. But I was hugely influenced by music, you know, at that point. And I'd listen to the radio, and Australian radio was quite eclectic. You had, you know, very much sort of pop contemporary shows. But you also had radio programs that played all kinds of stuff. And, and it was electronic music that got me excited because of the noises, and that turned into my love of synthesizers and everything electronic. But at, at that point, that yacht pop was huge. And and I remember thinking, I can actually remember where I was. I was down at Coogee Beach walking along the shops and it seemed that every shop was playing a song. And the way I described it to myself at the time was like men singing love songs that you, women would normally sing. And I think that's a pretty good representation of that era of pop music because it was emotional love songs were largely female in origin at the time. Um, it was all rock and roll. Dudes were like trying to be, you know what I mean? Trying yeah. to be sexy. Whereas all of a sudden, harmonies, and of course in Australia, we had the little rubber band and reminiscing was their big hit. And it had that yacht, what we now know as yacht rock sound with the harmony vocals 
and that incredibly, very extremely emotional, immense singing about nostalgia and romance. And I remember thinking, what's going on? It's like every song's like a dude singing about love. You know, not that I understood that much. And I remember thinking She's Gone was about someone who might have died. Right. You know, and I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, what a song, what, how do you write a song about someone that's died? You know, so obviously, in the, you know, as I've grown up, I've, I've now realized it's about romance. And, and how devastating it was to, to Daryl Hall to sing a song about, you know, losing someone who'd melt that meant much, much to him. But as a kid, it, it sounded like someone had died or whatever. But, but that, I remember that song, not only because it's a great song, but the pain in that, she's gone, was like, oh, God, it's so emotional. That, that, I, that I remember that having a big effect on me. Oh, what a record that is as well. Did you ever catch... Um... I've, I've only seen them on YouTube. I don't know if they were on, on, on some kind of TV network. But did you ever see any of them um, performances that he does in his barn? Like, oh, Daryl. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you know what? I got to write with him. I got, I got to write a couple of songs with him. It was incredible. I mean, obviously, he's an idol of mine. So, so it took a little bit for me to get my shit together. If I'm honest, there was a little bit... <laughs> You know, in any of these situations, I probably imagine only other, only other person that would be a bit of a mess would be would, would be Kate Bush. Yeah, well, I was you know that sort of freaked out. Um, the but but he was quite jittery. He's quite he's quite a nervous cat. You know, he's he's one of those. You know what I mean? And it took a little while to settle in. But when we did, it, I remember sitting with him the first time, and he said, "What do you want to do, man?" And I said, uh, "I want to write Kiss on my list." And he went. Yeah, I think I've already written that, man. <laughs> I know you have, but I want to write songs like that, you know. So, it, you know, you get, managed to get to actually someone who had that much of an effect on me was amazing. Oh, how wonderful. Okay, well, let's stay in the uh, the early years, and uh, and I'm going to ask you for track three for the song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Uh, so so I had, a, I had an event in my life when I was 12, which was my mum lost her mum and then ended up in a mental hospital, just lost touch with reality. Was you know. still in Australia, Elliot? Back in, we'd moved back to England. It was in Sheffield. It was in high school in Sheffield. And um, we, Nan had been in the final year of Australia, lived with us. So her and my mum were inseparable. I mean, they always were, but they, they were just inseparable so we came back because nan wanted to come home and we were home about a month and then nan died so she always wanted to come home to die around the family you know and, and uh so we it was all quite tumultuous so we just moved into the new house in part of sheffield i just started going to high school and um so that time between sort of around 13 14 when i was that age was incredibly tough in all kinds of ways mum mum was not mum anymore you know it was it was a hugely emotional time and you know to happen at those most formative parts of your life as well but but interestingly and as has served me all my life now music saved me you know music got me through it and the and the record that got me through that time and the the, the record i immediately go back to in any times where I've ever felt stressed or, you know, emotional or that things again, I go back to this well because it always got me through it would be Hounds of Love by Kate Bush, that album. 
So it's not a particular song. If anything, it's probably the B side of the album. The A side is mostly the singles. The B side of the album is such an emotional journey. And you, I can put that record on and, you know, it sort of transports me. I remember when she did that, that those loads of gigs in uh, Hammersmith Apollo. Did you get to go? I did. I did get to go. Um, it, it, it was, I mean, obviously the show was incredible. That She was spellbindingly brilliant. But it was that part, the part where she does the Hounds of Love stuff. Because you know, it was a long gig. It was like, you know, it was a good old chunk of time. And she did those songs that I was absolute blubbering mess. I couldn't hold it together. I didn't realise, you know, I've always said this, that music has this beautiful gift of, it can bring about a bio- biological change. Think about that sound waves going into you that can make you cry. It's, it feels like like physics madness to me, but it actually happens, you know. And I remember starting one of those songs, I think it was And Dream of Sheep or something like that. <laughs> I was just transported. I was 13 years old again, listening to it, just thinking, this music has been sent here to save me. And, and that's that's the way it still feels. And, and, you know, music has that incredible ability, thankfully, uh, which is why it's the queen of my soul and I surrender to it every day. So to touch on school, I mean, that's, you know, a, a life, life-altering situation you found yourself in there. How, how did you, you know, how, how was day-to-day at school? It was, it was, it was tough. Um, I didn't talk about it much, but the, I just had the piano. You know, anyone that remembers me from school remembers me as that guy on the piano every break, every lunchtime. So I think I just went there. I think I just used to sit there and learn songs and write songs. And, you know, I was in a couple of bands and stuff like that. I didn't really talk about what was going on at home because it was it was hard to, you know, to put into words what was how I was feeling and all the rest of it. So I just, I just used to just immerse myself in music and let it wrap its arms around me. And I, I think that, that we do that without realizing what we're doing. You know, if we feel to we get the headphones on or we go you know, into the music room, whatever you do to, to, to sort of escape, what we're letting music do is wrap its arms around us, mm. you know, and just remind us that, that, that this, this field of energy that is music is everywhere and is happy to, to, to take you in anytime you want to fall into it. And that, so I did that. I just sat at the piano every day and every break, every lunchtime after school and just would just immerse myself in music. Did you know what you wanted to be when you were at school? Um, when I, when I was about eight or nine years old, really getting into the sounds of music, actually, you know, hearing something like, Oh God, how do you make that sound? How do you do that? Um, I remember thinking, gosh, uh, how do you, how would I do this for the rest of my life? Listen to music. I remember thinking that, like, who's, who, how can you do that for a job? You know, who, who does that for a job? In actual fact, that sort of defines a producer pretty well. You know, if if you're not a hands-on producer, I'm, I'm a musician, so I'm very hands-on with all my records, but a lot of producers were that guy at the back of the room, you know, who would just sort of oversee, keep an eye on it. What about, you know, all this kind of thing. So every now and again, I get to play that role of, of or more, more like an old school producer where you get musicians in and you just, 
you know, invariably I'd, I'd like to be the bass player in the, in the band if I'm, if I'm producing a record. Because the bass player's always got that sort of vibe. He's at the back of the room, he's holding it down with the drummer, but he's also reacting to what's going on around him. You tend to find a lot of producers are bass players as it goes. So, so I would tell that, but, but there's nothing nicer than, than handing off the responsibilities of a musician and just sort of listening you know, I remember, so I remember thinking that takes me back to being that age and thinking, yeah, I, that's what I want to do. As I then learned that I could play, and I didn't know this at the time, but my dad was a singer. So I would go to the equivalent of working men's clubs that we have in the north. In Australia, were RSL clubs, it was like sports clubs. And he would do the cabaret circuit, you know, so, but he was playing standards and hits all the time. And I'd sit in his dressing room and then I'd go home and we had an organ. I remember this Eureka, you know, uh, moment of uh, of of my life where I remember seeing the organ for the first time and turning it on and somehow just being able to play one of the melodies Dad was singing and my dad said how do you, how do you, how are you doing that and I said I don't know I just understood it it was weird you know I'd never thought about it until then but then of course because I was able to do that pick out a melody and remember where it was on the keyboard I had no idea about music I don't read music or write it still you know I've never learned how to do that um I think probably because I was a little bit frightened of the idea of it because this is how it started I don't want it to change so I've still just grown as a musician into knowing more about the music technically but essentially that's where it started for me um and 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 that and that was it. So from that young age, I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm sort of getting to understand how this works. And then as time went on, you just learn more about the relationship between chord, melody, bass, and that. And that was it. I was off to the races. So I, I I knew from then onwards, at eight years old, that I wanted to be in music some form. Track four, the first song you ever buying from a record shop. <laughs> I remember this day so well. I remember saving up. I was eight years old, went to the record shop in uh, Sutherland, which is just down the road from my school in a place called the Shire, which is about 40 minutes south of Sydney. I'm going to this record shop because I'd seen this advert on the the telly for this album. The band were called Telex. They were a Belgian electronic band. They'd made an album called Looking for Saint-Tropez. And uh, there was, it was one, I think it was Moscow Disco was the single that was the single on radio. And the noises of it were just, I couldn't imagine how it was possibly made by a musical instrument, which is, of course, a synthesizer, which I had no idea about. And I went into this record shop. I'd got, I knew I'd got enough money. I think it was like $6 or something like that, $7. And... I knew they had these booths where you could go and put headphones on and listen to an album. So I sort of somewhere went, this kid, you know, of me, of eight years old, went into this record shop and said, uh, I want to buy the album by Telex. And I remember this guy looking at me like, what? (laughs) You know that about, I pointed to the album, I saw the cover. I said, can I, my mum has said, can I have a listen to it first? before I buy it. <laughs> Imagine this. You know, my mum, my mum has said I have to come in here and listen on those headphones and listen before I buy it, you know. And this dude didn't tell me to leave. You know, I think, you know, I was probably thinking, what is going on here? And put me, this little eight-year-old kid with these massive headphones on, and I just sat there in this room going, oh, my God, what is this music? 
and I bought the album, it changed my life. So Telex, that album record no one will probably ever have heard. Telex, Looking for Saint Tropez, was the life changer. 1970, 1978, 1979. Right. Oh, so that's kind of early doors of, of, of synth pop, really. Yeah, really early. So they were like, I don't even know if they succeeded, um, uh, you know, internationally. As It was, it was uh, that, there was, an, there was a song, a track, uh, it was called Space Invaders, which was a sort of, I remember seeing the video and seeing the, the, the video, the, there was like the game graphics uh, in their pop video. And again, it was electronic. And then there was like, soon after was the Buggles. And, and then from there, of course, you know, throughout the early 80s when I was back in the UK, Depeche Mode, you know, and all the rest of it. So I was in, you know, but of course, Sheffield. I mean, you, play- you've got some good stuff there. <laughs> yeah. Cabaret Voltaire was happening. Obviously, the Human League. You know, then Heaven Seventeen or BEF, if you like, before that. So, so once I once I learned that I just happened to be in the industrial electronic center of the universe, you know, with all of those people making records like that, it was a life changer. You know, I just couldn't get enough of it. And it, it's it's really interesting. Like that 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 kind of early eighties synth pop scene. Did the, the club that I mentioned that I run uh, down in Essex is was called Crocs um, before it was right. called the Pink Toothbrush. And our, our resident band, it's it's just the outside basement. Our resident band was Depeche Mode. Uh, and so you, that's where they used to play. Yes. That's right. I remember reading that. Amazing. So that's my place. And, uh, wow. and, and yeah, and there, you can go on. There's, there's, there's some footage from uh, the six o'clock show. If you go on YouTube, you see Danny Baker introducing yep. uh, Depeche Mode, and you can see the crocodile because we had a crocodile in the club. Crocodile in there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it in fact it was actually an alligator, but that didn't really go with the, the, the name of the club. But it was an alligator. But yeah, we had an actual uh, croc in there. But you can see Depeche Mode doing New Life uh, on stage there, and it's 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 wonderful. I remember reading something or seeing something about Vince Jones, Vince Clark. Sorry, Vince Clark saying that about this the crocodile yeah. thing. A sad little creature, but it was there, no doubt. Yeah, you know? and I mean, you, you know, if we're gonna sort of t- that scene as much as. You know, you've got Cabaret Voltaire and, and and the stuff that was kind of more, I would say, art school, electronic, yeah, experimental yeah. music. You know, if you look at things like New Life, you look at Temptation, you look at Keep Feeling Fascination, you look at Enola Gay, yeah. great synth records, but arguably incredible pop songs. Yeah, I mean, Depeche Mode, I mean, Daniel Miller seemed oh. to just... So, so he... He had that whole thing going before before even Depeche Mode. He had that sort of pop sensibility. He was yeah. making a quirky, you know, fad gadget records and that. But, but he was Warm still doing, yeah, 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 Warm Leatherette, exactly. But he was also doing sort of quirky things himself with like, didn't he do that quirky cover of a rock and roll song or something? It was like, it was like I seem to remember that was a, one of his earlier. Was things. that Silicon Teens? Yes, it was Silicon Teens, exactly. So he'd got a sort of pop sensibility, knowing that they, they needed to be commercial, which is why, of course, I'm sure Depeche Mode appealed to him because Vince had that natural pop thing going on, but it was still super modern. Mm. I think the only other band probably at the same time that were doing that electronic was, was OMD. Yeah. It was like electricity and, you know, stuff like that, that that was off that first album. And then, of course, you know, Souvenir, and then, then of course, we were off to the races with them and all the again, all the rest of it. But if you think if you think about that earliest period, the Human League was still in that sort of industrial experimental area. They were Depeche Mode and and um, and 
OMD were probably the front, front runners for the pop side. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's amazing your local place. What great is <laughs> Yeah, um, Vince, he's, uh, Vince, he's one of the, uh, he's on my bucket list for this podcast. He's, uh, oh, he, he, he's, He's a what a hero he is. I, uh, I mean, and and again, I think you know, Erasure. You know, people forget like how huge that band were. Incredible. Like I, I saw them it. at Milton Keynes Bowl, and really, yeah, they sold out Milton Keynes Bowl when they released Wild, and oh, when they were at the peak, uh, they were definitely at their, their 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 commercial peak there. And you listen back to the best of Erasure, and there is some pop gems on there. Yeah, I saw them at Sheffield Students' Union before. Uh, it was actually the single that they were promoting was sometimes the one that broke them. Yeah. Prior to that, it was Who Needs Love Like That was the um, was yeah. the other single. So I saw them at Sheffield Students' Union. Now, this 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 remarkable, I think, because here you got someone, Vince Clark, who had obviously broken through the Depeche Mode, then realised, oh, I don't really want to do this, I want to go back to my space station and and make music and then immediately afterwards hits up with alf and have incredible pop success with that incredible voice and then the next thing he touches on didn't break at all it was like they were they were they were an album in Hmm. and it wasn't really connecting even though andy sounded a bit like alison moyer yeah you know but i remember going to see them because i went i went to see this band i didn't really know any of their music but it was vince clark Mm. I thought, hold on, he's in Sheffield Student Union. Are you kidding me? I remember going to see that night, and it just sounded incredible. The mix was amazing, and his voice was incredible. I actually got to make work with Andy because um, we did. Uh, Gary and I did the soundtrack album of Eddie the Eagle, and we decided to write a load of songs that sounded like they should have been in the eighties. And I, I got to do the Erasure one, and and. I said, right, I'm just going to rush in myself to my Moog. I've got an old 70s Moog and three other mono synths and a drum machine. I thought, well, if Vince could do it, I'm going to have to learn how to do this. So that record is literally built out of four mono synths and, and, and Andy sang it. So, so it was like a total coming full circle moment for me. But, but I remember that, that whole period of music was literally set the scene for the rest of the industry, I think. Yeah. Don't you think? Definitely. It sort of changed everything. Absolutely. Unbelievable. What an what experience. Well, let's let's move forward a little bit. Uh, for track five, I'm going to ask you um, for the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. So that as, as much as they were, they were sort of very contemporary um, sounding records when I first went to a nightclub. So I'm six foot six, right? So all of my mates were older than me. So when I was 13 or 14, my mates were upper six. And they were having their 18th birthday. So I would go to a nightclub with them to go, you know, even though I was 14, I'd still get in because no one ever asked me my age because I was taller and looked, you know, older than they did, which, of course, is not great nowadays. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but but I remember going to clubs. So, so you would hear stuff that was very contemporary and all the rest of it. But one song that always got played every night that still sounded like a bit of a disco record, but it had synths in it and all the rest of it, was Funky Town by Lip Sync. Right. That that kept coming up. Do you know what I mean? I did that, 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 and you'd hear it, and that was it. People were on the dance floor. And it, and it somehow felt like a timeless disco record, even though it had all of that sort of 
late 70s disco thing going on. It's still crossed into the 80s pretty seamlessly. Because, because of that of, little synth playover. Like Giorgio Moroder's yeah. stuff, you know. And I feel, look, it's sort of, it transcended because it was so futuristic sounding. So even even now when I hear that record, it's still those synth sounds. They're still on records nowadays, those bleepy yeah. synth anything nowadays more than ever because there's the whole electronic retro thing going on. So I think that was the song. I remember if I was to imagine a scene in a in a nightclub in the mid to late eighties, that would that song would be playing. Nice. Was you a big clubber? I think. I mean, as much as any teenager, I think. I think that you know, so to say less than many teenagers in a way, because I think that if you're a musician, you sacrifice two parts of your life. You sacrifice the BMX years. You know, when all your mates are out on the estate riding around because you're just learning an instrument. You know, you're in a bedroom learning how to play something. The next time you miss out is when you're one of the lads, you know, so you're probably 19, 20, going out, you know, pub crawls and all the rest of it because you're in studios by then. You know what I mean? Making, actually making music. In between, thankfully... Because I, like I say, because I was sort of 14 going on 20, I had a little window there where I got to go because it was, I was still in school. So the upper, upper six that were about to leave were having their 18th birthday, birthdays. My best mate could drive. You know, he was, he was upper six and he had a car. So that we were just made, we absolutely cracked it, you know, because we could go to nightclubs, but we could actually drive girls there. It was amazing. So, so, all of my taste in music was was based on that little window. So, of course, when I hit 16, I was fed up of doing all that, yeah. you know, and thank I was in studios then being T-boys and making records and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so I had that little window simply because I was always a, sort of ahead of my time in that instance. Wonderful. Well, let's take you home for track six. Um, Ellie, I'm going to ask you for a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. All right. Really easy, don't you want me by the Human League? I mean, this is when so Martin Russian gets involved with the Human League. So they went from that kooky, quirky pop of travel log and uh, boys and girls, and then somehow it felt like overnight there was like shiny, expensive sounding pop record that sounded like America to me. Is, you know what I mean? It had a, it had a, something about it, and I've noticed obviously this is Martin Russian's genius to be able to listen to their pop songs and go right. Okay, this is how we do this. Phil Oakey has now become a great mate because their studio is literally next door to mine in Sheffield. In the we're in the same facility, so when they're going on tour, I can hear them through the wall. So I, I go out in the hallway and just sort of listen. You know, as now as a fifty year old bloke. So still getting off on the fact that, I, that my idols are through that wall. So so now I'm great mates with the girls and Phil. Phil I tend to see in Sainsbury's and we stand there for an hour putting the world to rights, you know. So it's an amazing thing for me to have this opportunity. But but as a kid, I remember hearing Don't You Want Me first. I think prior to that, I think Love Action and maybe Opening Your Heart had already been released, or one of them had. I can't remember was, what was. I think it was the last single, uh, Don't You Want Me, because if I remember rightly, if the story goes, you probably know this better than me, the band weren't keen on it. It was, yeah, it right. was, it was the label that was like, I don't think you realise how good this is. Yeah. But just to talk about the the the, the, the big, shiny kind of, Huge production that 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 
you know that that band transformed with on on that record. You mentioned "Open Your Heart" there. That synth line when his vocal kicks in at the beginning of that. Yeah. Fucking yeah. hell! It's the ridiculous. The love action. Yeah. That's is just so characteristic of that era. Yeah. But I think Love Action, Open Your Heart had been hits. But then, Don't You Want Me? I remember thinking Love Action and Open Your Heart were incredible. Hard Times was the B-side. Mm. It was an amazing sounding record. So I remember buying Dare. That was one of those big save-up records to go and buy, you know. And in Sheffield, it was everywhere. Everyone had that crazy hair, you know. And, and, and we're talking about the Human League. Fashion and pop music were, of course, locked, interlocked. So I remember going into, it was Bradley's Records, I remember going in and buying the album, and, and it was number one album, but there were like two copies left in the pile, you know, and I remember getting it, thinking it was a real result that I'd got it, and taking it home and coming across that song, Don't You Want Me? And like I say, it, my instant reaction to it was, it sounds like it's not from here. It sounds American or whatever, because he just had such almost like a Motown songs have, almost a clarity of songwriting that went beyond anything I'd ever heard before, like a maturity. Maturity is the right word. Like a maturity to the song itself that felt like it must be an old song. It must have, must be by someone else, like a, one of those old Motown acts or something. Because okay. it just felt so grown up and, and amazing. And, of course, it was just... It's one of those... That is in the soundtrack of just about everyone I've ever met. You know, I don't know anyone that doesn't listen to that song. And go, oh my god, it's like you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's so interesting that you said that. You know, you, you know. Correct me if I, I, I misread that, but it almost sounds like the first time you heard it, it already sounded like a classic. Yeah, I yes. mean, that's not an easy thing to do. And you, I'm, I'm no. sure, as a songwriter, you would you would know that. Yeah, well, it's one of the. It's probably what you've touched on there is probably the the desire of any songwriter ever to write a song that you play it to someone and they go, "This feels like it's already been a hit," you know, before it is. You know, if you ever hear that, it's like getting a badge of honor as a songwriter. Yeah. So yes, I think that's right. I think the, my over my immediate feeling was, this feels like it's it's like something I should already know. Yeah, so which is that which is that feeling, isn't it? Yeah, there, I mean, there's. There's been, you know, so much incredible music come out of Sheffield over the last sort of, you know, thirty years. It's uh... so lucky. Obviously, prior to that, you know, Joe Cocker. Mm. Again, again, I had the honour of of him singing one of my songs. You know, and getting to actually sit with him and say, you know, I'm a I'm a Sheffield boy as well. You know, so I've had these crazy moments. We we did it. We did a gig for uh, with Tony Christie. It was a charity gig in Sheffield, of course, as a Sheffield boy. Yeah. Um, it was a it was an, a fundraising event to build a statue in Sheffield of the women of steel, um, which is a fantastic, beautiful thing. When men went to war, it left the women in Sheffield to run the steelworks, and they did. They kept it all going, the war effort and everything. But no one had never had a tribute to them, and there were there were I think six of the the original steel women of steel left. So me and John Parr and John Riley got together and wrote, made a record, the Women of Steel which is a bit of a theme of Sheffield now. But we did a gig and raised enough money to build this statue outside the Sheffield City Hall, which is one of my proudest moments. But um, the final part of the gig was Tony Christie singing uh, Amarillo. And all of the artists came on. So we had ABC there, Heaven 70. And all of a sudden, I was stood there singing 
next to Glenn Gregory and Martin Ware. I was like, fucking hell, I'm in episode 17. It's an amazing moment for me of turning around and seeing my childhood idols sharing a microphone singing. <laughs> what a moment. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Amazing moment. Oh, brilliant. Um, I actually was lucky enough last week I sat down and, and done this podcast with Martin. And uh, it was, uh, there was a, a lot of love for Sheffield coming from him as well. He's amazing. Do you know what? He, he's he's very supportive of anything that happens here. He's obviously remembers him so stressful time with the human league and, and all that, but he still sees Sheffield as being a you know, he's a Wednesday fan and he still sees Sheffield as being home in that instance. Like a lot of those art school kids that went to college here and still stayed here. I think it's has the highest retention of any college or university. Really? Go to Sheffield and end up spending their life there. Which is weird, isn't it? But it's just one of those places, I guess. Last track. Um, and this is your chance to, to be DJ and turn someone ah. on to something new. Um, it's a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Is this, is this a, like a classic song or is this, is this something? It, it can be a brand new demo. It can be uh, a classic that you think a lot of people might not have heard. That It's like, look, you might have heard this album, but they've done this track years before you should check that out anything you want it to be okay so i think that <laughs> this is a tough one my my all time the the song that defines me as a as a produ- more than anything else as a songwriter and producer would be say la vie by robbie neville wow um, which and and i'll tell you why it, it, when i when i was by the time i was in a band and, and this is because it's like I didn't know how a songwriter or record producer could break through. You know what I mean? It's like, how, how do you do? You don't do that. You're in a band. Do you know what I mean? That's the way you'd, you'd, you'd get into the music industry. We had a band called World Still Turns. We, we were like one of those blue-eyed soul bands, you know, and everyone, every name was a sentence like Johnny Hates Jazz or something. Do you know what I mean? So we <laughs> Three-word names, you know what I mean? So, so, so we were called World Still Turns. And, and we were like slick blue eyes. We got a great singer. This guy called John Telly was the singer. I was the keyboard player, songwriter guy, programmer guy. Um, and we had a guitarist. So I worked with Tom Chester, who was like on the studio we worked in. So that was us, three boys, three, you know, very much of the time. Um, Curiosity killed the cat vibe. That You know what I mean? That, that era. So we were doing quite slick pop. And um, Jeff Young, from Jeff Young, Big Beats from Radio One. He 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 uh, was an A&R guy at MCA, and he signed us. And I remember having that meeting of there was only one producer I wanted to work with. It was Alex Sadkin, because he'd made Sailor V. He'd done uh, the Thompson Twins records. That just the sound of them were amazing. But but Sailor V in particular. I just I just couldn't get my head around how he produced it. It just had electronic pop going on. It had horns that sounded incredible. The backing vocals, were, and the, the, it was just a brilliant pop song. I remember here, every time I'd hear it, I'd be like, oh, how do you make drums sound like that? How do you make, you know, how do you make those horns players do that? And it was, and even nowadays, interestingly, it was co-produced by Alex Sadkin and Phil Thornalley. 
who is a good mate now. I didn't know until about two months ago that Phil Thornalley was involved in that record. So Phil was the bass player in The Cure. He wrote Torn by, um, you know, uh, what's the name? Um, Brilliant. Uh, and I've I've written with him a couple of times with Brian Adams, season mate of Brian's, and a great dude. But I had no idea until I, I just started doing a radio station, a radio show on a little community radio station. I could do it from home here on this microphone. Uh, so I started putting playlists together. And of course, the first thing I did was Say La Vie. And I looked at the credits and it said produced by Alex Sadkin and Phil. I was like, oh my God. Cut back to the original story. The only person I ever wanted to work with was, with, was Alex Sadkin. Because I just thought, if we're going to make a pop record, he's the guy. So I remember sitting in the record company saying, and they said, have you thought about a producer? I said, yeah, yeah. I know it might take some time. I don't care how long it takes to get to work with him. I want to work with Alex Sadkin. And the owner, I go, yeah, that would be a brilliant idea. Sadly, he died in a car crash two weeks ago in, in Montserrat, the way he was out at Air Studios. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And I remember the feeling of devastation that not only that that I, I can't work with him, I remember thinking then we're never going to be able to make that record sound the way we want it to sound. So I sat there and I went, I don't want to do this. And the other band members looked at me and went, what? And I went, I want to, I want to learn how to make records like that. I want to be a producer. I don't want to be in a band. And that was it. I left the band. And so my entire career as a writer-producer is dedicated to Alex Sadkin. In that moment, that I learned that I'd never be able to work with him I want to make records like that. And I listen to Say La Vie now when I play it on the radio. So, and I listen to my headphones and go, 
I still don't know how to do it. So, so I called Phil Thornally. You were involved. What's that sound? How do you make that? And he just laughed at me. And he went, "Hell, you're never going to make that record sound like that again." Because it's it was of the day we were pushing technology to its you know limits. I've had the same conversations you know on on a few occasions with Steve Lipson, who did all of those you know amazing Frankie records with. Yeah. You know, and, and all of that. So you have those conversations with these producers. And I forget when people say to me, oh, how did you make that Spice Girls record? You kind of go, I don't know. I can't remember. Just, <laughs> that, and that and that and that. And they, all of a sudden turns into a record. There's no way of going into it. Because, you, you know, but I, so I reckon if I had to put it down to one thing, the one most defining song, Say Lovey by Robbie Neville, oh, pop record. Wonderful. Great choice. And what a story. Um, <laughs> As we start to wrap things up, um, I'm just going to ask you, um, Elliot, what we do also do is a, a Spotify playlist to accompany this podcast oh, yeah. so people can go and listen to um, all of your picks uh, and some of the other songs that we've, we've chatted about today. Um, as 2021 um, you know, starts to unfold and, and vaccinations are in place and, you know, yeah. and there's rumours of coming out of, of this, this, this lockdown we're in, what yeah. are you... What are you looking forward to um, happening this year personally and, and what's happening professionally? I, I, um, so there's a, couple of, there's a couple of things, big things for, for me coming up. Um, one is when we're able to get people back in theatres again, bringing mine and Gary's Broadway musical Finding Neverland to the UK and starting London doing a tour. I can't wait for that to happen. We 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 wrote it as a Broadway musical, but it it's me and Gaz, and the book writer is um, James Graham, who's an incredible writer and playwright. We're all three Northern English boys, you know, telling the story of how Peter Pan was written, you know, by a Scottish bloke. So it's it deserves to be here. It really needs to be in this this part of the world. So um, I can't wait for that to happen. That's the that's the big push at the moment. Um, I'm writing a new musical. I'm about halfway into it, which is you know um, you know that iconic photo of the guys eating lunch on a girder high above New York, lunch atop a skyscraper. Yeah. It freaks people out when they see it because it's so so vision. Um, I'm writing a musical about that photograph. It's about the immigrants that built New York. And it's called Empire State Dreams. It's incredibly creative process for me, just deciding that's what, I, you know, seeing that photograph and realising there's an incredible story there because no one knows who those guys are and no one knows who took the photo. So you've got total creative licence, you know. Um, so that's a big creative thing for me. And then, of course, releasing my album, which came out of nowhere, seemed totally madness. So the thing I can't wait to do, I've never, ever felt like I wanted to do, I now can't wait to go on tour and play. I don't care. Going back to the Vince Clark thing of seeing Vince Clark of global success in Sheffield University room, I don't mind going and playing to 30 people, you know, just because I've, you know, managed to have a number one with Aretha Franklin or Brian Adams or whatever else, Celine Dion or God knows how many that are in there. It, music is the ultimate leveller and should be. Do you know what I mean? So if I can sit and play that album for 10 people that they enjoy it, result. So I can't wait to do that. I can't wait to go and play this music I've been writing. Wonderful. Elliot, thanks so much for your time today, mate. It's been a really, really lovely chat. Lovely story. Brilliant. I've enjoyed every part of it. Wonderful.
there you go. What a top gent he was. Um, what a story. And I mean, it's brilliant that there's, you know, there's, there's these songwriters that, you know, potentially you can walk past down the street and you wouldn't know who they are. And then, you know, oh, what have you done? Oh, I've done this. And it's like, it's just this huge, huge back catalogue of like incredible, incredible content. And, uh, and yeah, what an absolute top fella Elliot was. Um, I hope you had as much um, joy listening to that podcast as I did recording it. Um, go and check out all the songs we spoke about on Elliot's uh, Spotify playlist over on Off The Beaten Track. And, yeah, you can find out about anything else you want to know about this podcast at www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. I'm back next time. Um, yep, stay safe and uh, much love. See you next time. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So, if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk, official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stu Whiffin. Eat a